and welcome to episode 150 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, I would like to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Charlie Murphy, Heidi, Sharon, Lean Lean, Audrey Herbert, Bryn Stevenson, Patrice Thomas, Sophie Riozzi, Schmansley, Sarah Griffiths, Jen McKinnon, Katie Quinn, Louie, Dakota the Scrunkly, Amanda Birdwell, Quinton Barcott, Distinguishing Demons Podcast, Rachel Latimer, Saffron Rosewarn, and Rose Wolf. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and I appreciate you every single day. And because this is episode 150 of Real Life Ghost Stories, this week I'm going to run some giveaways on Instagram and on Facebook and hopefully on Patreon. But Patreon sometimes tell me off if I try and do giveaways because it's like against their terms of service. So I'll try and figure out a way around it. But just keep an eye on the socials this week for some giveaways to win some merch of your choice. And our film review this week. Our film review is The Woman in Black. The Woman in Black was released in 2012. It has 6.4 out of 10 on IMDb and 66% on Rotten Tomatoes. A lawyer is assigned to travel to a village to examine a house that belonged to a recently deceased woman. He discovers the spirit of the same woman and learns that she's killing the village children. So last week and the week before I made the great promise that I was going to make the film reviews shorter and less rambling. So we're going to try again this week and see if we are successful. Things I liked about The Woman in Black. The setting and the atmosphere is amazing and it really sticks to the Victorian gothic tropes. So the house and the landscape almost become characters in themselves and add to the tension beautifully. So the house I think is called Eelmarsh House from what I can remember and it's this big rambling old gothic rundown house and it is gorgeous you're in, he's really isolated in this area the villagers are very isolated themselves very secretive they know there's something going on but they don't want to talk to the outsider about it really beautifully set the woman in black herself is such a good supernatural creature so you get like little glimpses of her throughout the story it's really well done and she's just a great revenge-seeking ghost. I kind of love the simplicity of it. You know that you have this revenge-seeking ghost. She manifests fundamentally as a poltergeist for a lot of the time. And then you see her in little glimpses that Arthur Kipps, the protagonist, gets to see. And I really like her as a, as a ghost. I think she's a pretty good one. Her backstory is definitely interesting, but it's quite straightforward. It's simple. You know what's going on. And look... I think the villagers are right. If she wants to go around killing local children, that is her own business. It's nobody else's concern. And when Arthur Kipps arrives in the village, the villagers are kind of less than welcoming to him, except for Mr. Daly. And I love the character of Mr. Daly and his wife. I think it's such a good subplot and his wife genuinely terrifies me. And I guess there needs to be a word of warning too that this film is sometimes marketed as like a 12A and sometimes marketed as a 15. It depends on a particular hanging scene, whether it's in the film or whether it's not in the film as to whether it's a 12 or a 15. But there are some pretty gruesome deaths of children that are portrayed in this film. And I think they really add to the tension. But obviously it's kind of worth it. Does the dog die? Google before you watch it. But holy moly, like some of those deaths of children, they do not hold back. 
And that cheery note brings me to the things that I didn't particularly like about this movie. What I'm going to say is going to be controversial and I'm sorry in advance. I don't rate Daniel Radcliffe in this film. I'm pretty sure it was his first post Harry Potter role. And I think it was probably was really quite scary for him to be involved in something that wasn't Harry Potter and to be doing this really serious role in a big grown up film. But I just don't think he was particularly strong in this movie. And I really do think the film would have benefited more from like a seasoned actor who could carry an isolated role on their shoulders. I don't know, like I'm not an actor. I don't know about what it's like to act in a film, particularly a horror film. But I feel like acting in a horror film, you end up doing a lot of it on your own, especially in a really atmospheric horror like this. I think you've got to be pretty strong to carry a film like that on your own because you have to be so expressive. And I just don't feel like Daniel Radcliffe was. Maybe it was his own nervousness about the role. Maybe he just wasn't growing up enough as an actor, if that makes sense, to be able to do a role like this. But I just didn't feel like he was the best person for the job. The last thing that I really disliked is the ending. But, you know, I think that's pretty much a personal preference. Like, that's very subjective if you don't like how the story is concluded. And I just just wasn't a big fan of it. So I'm going to say that this movie, I'm actually going to give it a 4 out of 5. I really considered giving it a 3. But I think the things that they do well, they do really well. Like, it's very edge of your seat, very jumpy, very atmospheric. It's not a very fast horror movie in that it kind of sticks to the Victorian trope of not much happens, not much happens, not much happens, and then we get a big conclusion. It's very true to the Victorian characteristics of a gothic story. And I, you know what, I appreciate that. And I loved the atmosphere. If you like films like The Others, then this is probably a film for you. And I have to say, before we go any further, I need to give a shout out to the book and the theatre production. When I posted about this film so many people commented about the theatre production and the book itself. The book is brilliant and the theatre production is also brilliant. So definitely those two things are well worth checking out too. Which brings us to our story this week. I'm not going to give you any lead into this story. Let's just get into it. Mary lived in a village just north of Dublin called Malahide. And life certainly wasn't easy. Although she was only in her thirties, Mary was exhausted and world-weary. She had had many children and lived in a little cottage opposite boggy wetlands. She thought back on her life as she scrubbed, rubbed and swept the small cottage. In her teenage years, she had worked in a big house for the Letts family. And then she had met her husband. That bastard. She shuddered every time she thought about him. He dipped in and out of their lives, wreaking havoc. But Mary didn't have any choice but to stay. She was stuck with him and that was that. She straightened herself up and put her hand on her swollen belly. The last time she had had a baby, the doctors told her that any more would kill her. And yet here she was, pregnant again, and praying that everything would be okay. She stepped outside to get some fresh air. The roof of the cottage sagged and sighed under its own weight. The vegetable patch looked a little sparse for her liking and she wished to God that the little stone wall that surrounded her property was at least comfortable enough to sit on. It wasn't, of course. And as she looked at the cottage, she also wished that it had been whitewashed again. It looked as grey and as tired as she felt. 
She wished it was hers, that she owned it, but she was stuck renting the property from Mac and trying to wrestle the money from her useless husband before he drank every penny of it. She heard the familiar step of her friend Moll pattering down the dirt road, and she smiled, a genuine, real smile, and retreated into the cottage to boil water for tea. Mary didn't survive. The doctors had been right to warn her off having another child, but in the early 20th century in Ireland, contraception wasn't available, and a woman was expected to bow to her husband's every desire. She died a month after giving birth, feeling the wretched guilt of leaving her children behind and feeling the pain of the infections that ravaged her body. Mary died alone, in a white room with long windows, in the Rotunda Hospital in Dublin. She was 35 years old. Mary's story in itself is not unusual. But what is unusual is that Mary's story was taking place in the dreams and memories of four-year-old Jenny Cockle, who was living in England. Jenny had never been to Ireland and her only connection to the country was a great-grandmother who was part Irish, but who had never lived there. Even at a young age, Jenny had a sense that the dreams that she was experiencing were not in fact dreams, but memories of a past life. The most painful for her were the dreams and memories of her own death. She was riddled with the pain and the guilt that Mary felt, but was too young to understand what any of it really meant. Jenny did odd things in her own life, things that seemed completely incongruous with her surroundings. She swept and cleaned a little shed in the garden, using a broom. Every Sunday she would insist on dressing her best because that's what people did on a Sunday, despite her family not being religious. At various times in her life she felt as though she were too tall, just not the height or build that she should be. She felt as though the clothes she wore were too light. She was used to wearing long heavy woolen skirts and shawls and felt uncomfortable not wearing them. She drew map after map of a place she had never seen before but it was based entirely on memories. She labelled the three churches that she could remember, she labelled her little cottage and the butchers, the roads that led to the city, and the jetty where she would stand and wait for someone to come home. She couldn't remember exactly who it was that she was waiting for, but she did remember the waiting. Jenny had no idea that what she was experiencing wasn't quite normal, until she began to tell people about it. She assumed that everyone had lives that they lived before and that everyone could remember, but they couldn't. As a child, she happily chatted to her mother about her previous life in Ireland, when she was Mary, and how sad she was that she had to die. Her mother handled it very well and just listened patiently to Jenny. If she was frightened by her daughter's revelations, she kept it well hidden. Unfortunately for Jenny, life at home was not easy. Her father was a difficult man to live with, and she became withdrawn and stopped talking about Mary. Despite not talking about Mary, she was still plagued with memories and dreams about her, particularly the moments in time that led up to her death. 
Her parents separated when she was 13 and Jenny finally felt able to talk about Mary and explore the possibilities surrounding why she had these memories and dreams. Smells would produce flashbacks. Like one day she smelled fresh, hot tar and she had a memory of the road outside Mary's cottage being tarred and all of the local children coming out to watch the event. Earthy smells would invoke memories of pulling vegetables from her vegetable plot. She heard Irish music for the first time and felt like she was home and she had the inexplicable need to find her children. It was all she wanted. Around this time, a new bookshop opened in Jenny's town and she ordered a detailed map of Dublin. When poring over the map, she was instantly drawn to Malahide and dug out the maps she had drawn years previously. They matched. She desperately wanted to reach out and find out what happened to her children, but she had no surname and couldn't for the life of her find one in her memories. As she got older, she wondered if she had some sort of psychic gift, whether she really had lived a life previously as a woman named Mary in a village outside of Dublin. Life moved on for Jenny, and as an adult, she began to explore the possibility of reincarnation and then decided to try hypnotic regression. She had a theory, a nagging feeling that she could remember her past life because Mary's life was cut short and Mary was racked with guilt for leaving her children behind. It was as though her life was unfinished, so elements of it were being relived through Jenny. On the 6th of January 1988, Jenny underwent her first session of regressive hypnosis. The hypnotist began by exploring memories of Jenny's own childhood and then asked her to remember back before she was born. Jenny, as Mary, described working for the Letts family at 15, before she lived in the cottage in Malahide. She remembered a grocery shop that sold hair ribbons that often ran out of bread. In 1919, she was 21 and remembered walking down the street with her husband beside her. He was incredibly handsome. She remembered her children and feelings of fear. She remembered the lack of meat in their diet and the children snaring rabbits and squirrels to add to stews. She specifically remembered the children being excited about trapping a hare and being unsure of how to kill it because it was still alive. She remembered the markets and described them in great detail. She remembered the hospital room and her death. And then there was nothing. Until she felt the unmistakable need to exist. Through these sessions, Jenny speculated that her name may have been Mary O'Neill and set about writing to O'Neill families that currently lived in Malahide looking for information. Dear Mr O'Neill, Please excuse the intrusion, but I am trying to trace a family who lived fairly near to you. They may have had the same family name, and I wondered if there was any family connection. The family I am searching for lived in the first cottage on the left, on the road marked on the map enclosed. It was during the 1920s and 1930s. There were at least six or more children, and the mother, who I believe was named Mary, died in the 1930s. Mr O'Neill had no answers for Mary, and nor did any of her searching. Eventually, she knew that she had no option but to go to Malahide, 
and on the 20th of June 1989, Mary got a plane from Luton to Dublin Airport and set on her journey to find out who she really was. And when Jenny got to Malahide, she felt like she was home. Things had changed, naturally, but much of it retained the essence of her dreams and memories. She explored the streets and finally plucked up the courage to find the cottage. But it wasn't there. She went to the exact location where she knew it should be. And there was no sign of it. Dejected, she boarded a plane back to England. Mary's life had dominated most of Jenny's and she couldn't just let it go. She had to find these children if they even existed. Jenny was a member of Mensa and decided that she would use this to her advantage in her last-ditch attempt to track down Mary's children. She wrote letters to Mensa members who were located in and around the Malahide area, hoping that they would be able to help with some of the research that was location-dependent. And it worked. Jenny began to receive letters, and two in particular stood out. Firstly, there had been a cottage in the exact location that Jenny had highlighted, but it had been ripped down. And it had been a cottage full of children, and the mother of the children had died in her thirties. And then more information came through, which read, Relating to the mother who died in the 1930s, she was Mrs. Mary Sutton. I believe her husband was a British soldier in the 1914-18 war. After her death, the children were sent to orphanages. Later, their eldest daughter Mary returned to the home. I believe the husband returned to the UK to train soldiers from 1939 to 45. Their children attended Roman Catholic schools, but perhaps their father was a member of the Church of Ireland. Jenny now had the means to try and find the children, and she wrote to the members of the clergy who had presided over the local orphanages, and she found that there were records in the local area of six children, complete with names and birth dates and marriage records where applicable. Jenny wrote letters to anyone she could think of and took out adverts in Irish newspapers. She again felt shook by the fact that there were six children, when she had always been convinced that there were eight. The daughter of one of the sons, James, was the first to call. She explained that she had seen Jenny's advert and believed that her father was the son of Mary Sutton. She explained that after the death of their mother, the children had been split up, and even now, years later, they had not all been reunited, but the brothers had recently reunited. She also confirmed that there were not six children. There were eight children, as Jenny had instinctively known all along. This granddaughter of Mary Sutton passed on any of the information of the other siblings that she had to her disposal. And next, Jenny met with one of the sons, Sonny, who listened to her story and believed her. He was 71 years old when they met and this strange woman, who was younger than him, told him things about his childhood that she never could have known. She talked about the fear she felt when she remembered his father, 
and he confirmed that his father had been a violent man and a drunk. He confirmed the memory of the road being tarred and the excitement of the local children who all came out to watch. He remembered the live hare being snared and again the children being excited at seeing this creature and the prospect of meat in their stew. He laughed at the descriptions of the cottage with its small windows and sagging roof and confirmed that it was definitely in need of a good whitewash towards the end of Mary's life and it really used to annoy her. Mary and her husband rented the cottage from a man named McMahon or Mac. Mary had a friend who used to come and visit who was also called Mary but Moll or Molly was often used as a nickname for Mary. They talked for hours about what had happened after Mary had died and how the brothers had found each other again. The market that Jenny described was the Moore Street Market, where Mary would go every Friday. They compared notes about memories and much of it seemed to be confirmed. Finally, Jenny told Sonny about her vivid memories of waiting for someone on a jetty and he laughed and laughed. That was me that Mammy used to wait for. I used to work on the island and had to go to and from work in a little rowboat and Mammy used to stand and wait on the jetty for me to come home in the evenings. She would be wrapped in a shawl looking out to sea waiting for the boat to come in. Sonny for one accepted that Jenny was somehow connected to his mother and eventually the other siblings were contacted and heard bits and pieces of Jenny's story. The eldest daughter Mary had died at the age of 24. The second youngest Bridget is believed to have gone to Australia but was never tracked down. In the end Jenny was in touch with five of the Sutton children and met with four of them. Eventually she returned to Malahide and found the old stone foundations of the cottage that she had lived in before she was born. So before we do any dissection of this story, my information came from Jenny Cockle's book called Yesterday's Children. So she wrote a book herself about her experience and her searching for Mary Sutton and her searching for her children. Yes, so that's where all of my information came from. So Jenny Cockle's story became really big in the 90s and I believe she was on an episode of Strange But True. There was, I think, a BBC adaptation of her story that was turned into a movie with some changes made like the uh, character, like Jenny Cockle's character was portrayed as an American woman rather than a British woman. And uh, I don't know what other changes. I think they changed her name. Anyway, various other bits and pieces. So her story is pretty well known. It has been also widely reported in the Irish media so there are lots of newspaper articles, newspaper reports about Jenny's story and about her search for the Sutton children. And she has since gone on to write other books about her experiences. So I guess the first thing, the first criticism that really needs to be addressed is the Occam's razor of the reincarnation world, which is cryptomnesia. I think it's cryptomnesia. If I'm saying it wrong, I apologize. But cryptomnesia is when a forgotten memory returns without its being recognized as such by the subject who believes that it is now something new or original. So for example if somebody told Jenny Cockle a story about their childhood in Ireland she forgets that conversation but then when she remembers it she believes it is a memory of her own a new memory and not 
something that somebody has told her. Um, I don't know if that make, actually makes sense. It's probably a really bad example. But it's basically, yeah, it's it's something has informed your memories, your what you believe are memories of a situation and you don't realise it. So it is a completely subconscious thing or it's believed to be a subconscious thing. And there are lots of criticisms of Jenny's story, obviously. And a lot of researchers have said that it's most likely a case of cryptomnesia where she has learned things about Ireland or discovered things about Ireland or somebody's life in Ireland and she now remembers them as past life memories. I think what stood out for me is that Jenny was in a really high stress situation in her childhood. She writes about this opening in her book that her childhood wasn't very positive, it wasn't very good. She didn't really know how to relate to people on a personal level. She found life and living in the world incredibly difficult. She suffers from what sounds like anxiety and periods of depression that she has been medicated for. So she had a really tough time. Like Life has not been easy for her. And then on top of that, her dad seems to have been a pretty difficult and horrible man to live with. And she retreated into those memories of Mary. They almost became like a survival mode for her, like a place where she could find peace. So I did wonder if perhaps she was in such a high stress situation and these imaginings became a source of comfort and solace in such a way that later in life they seem to have more importance or weight than just being childhood imaginings. It does seem almost unfair to relegate this story to childhood imaginings that a woman kind of deemed as being really important. But that is what sceptics of this story say, that she had these imaginings and she gave them more importance than perhaps they deserved. I think the other big criticism of this story is the fact that when you read about this story in shortened versions, so you will see kind of little sound bites almost from the story that say things like, Jenny Cockle was Mary Sutton in a past life and all of the children accepted this and believed that Jenny Cockle was their mother reincarnated. And actually on reading the book, that's not necessarily true. So I've seen sound bites that say four of the children fully believed that Jenny Cockle was their mother reincarnated and four of them accepted that she had, you know, memories that she couldn't possibly have had and the memories were of their mother or from their mother. But that's also not true. Yes, there were eight children, but one of them was dead. One of them is unaccounted for and others actually didn't have very much to do with Jenny, it seems. She did communicate with, I think she said, four out of five of the children she communicated with or had met. But it does seem that her most significant relationship with one of those children was with Sonny, who she seemed to have a pretty a pretty intense relationship with over for the rest of his life basically until he died they they maintained a relationship and Sonny for one believed her story it would seem but I don't think it's as straightforward as saying all of the children believed it in some way or another there was there were there you know some of the girls I think they they didn't believe in reincarnation because it goes against Catholic teaching but I know one of the girls consulted with maybe a priest I think it was and he said that perhaps Jenny Cockle was like channeling their mother or was like a voice for their mother to try and bring the family back together which is also possible or is it just a case of confirmation bias where this woman had these memories or imaginings of 
a life in Ireland. And look, I'm not being funny, but like in the early 20th century in Ireland, being called Mary anything was incredibly popular. It was completely common for women to have lots of children. As I said in the story, like contraception wasn't available. And actually in terms of Catholicism, it was encouraged for women to have lots of children. And, you know, a lot of relationships weren't very positive. Divorce wasn't allowed, so people had to stay together. So Mary's general story isn't necessarily that unusual. It would be quite a common story. Did then some of these little details like happen to fall into place and make the story more viable? I don't really know. And there is one more criticism, which is kind of a very small thing, but feels like a very big thing. Under hypnosis in the book, Jenny Cockle states that Mary had no clue about the Irish War of Independence. Like she didn't really know anything about it. I mean, this is a woman who would have lived in Malahide. So she was in the Dublin area, travelled to Moore Street regularly to go to the markets and she knew nothing of the War of Independence. So presumably then that means she knew nothing really of the 1916 Rising. She knew nothing of the impact that had on the city of war breaking out in the city of Dublin. Just seems a bit odd that she would know nothing about the Irish War of Independence. The other side of this story is, what if it's true? Just simply, what if it is true? So in her hypnosis sessions, she didn't just recall the life of Mary Sutton. She recalled other past lives, not in great detail in this particular story. I do think she went on to write more books about her other past lives, but she had like a memory of being a peasant child in France, I think it was. And her memories of past lives seem to have been lives that were cut short, which lends credence to her own theory about past lives being remembered because the person that you were before, their life was cut short. And there is always a critical argument where people say, when people have past life memories, why are they always important to people? Why are they priestesses? Why are they, you know, lords and ladies? Actually, sometimes they just remember life as a normal person. And then I think about all of the stories that we get in on a weekly, on a daily basis from people who have kids who say weird things about their past lives or people who they themselves had memories of past lives that they no longer remember, but their parents remember them saying strange things. And if that's the case, do we all have little past lives that are buried away in there? Or is it a case that we that we all have the ability to remember past lives or alleged past lives if we are given the tools to prime us to be able to remember them in a certain way but I do think it's strange for a child to have these intricate memories of a death a death of somebody in a past life you know the death of a young woman and then the memories of the guilt of leaving the children behind the memories of the pain that they felt before they died the intricate memories of the life that they lived and actually how unhappy they were it's all it's all very strange i don't know let me know what you think is this a story of a past life potentially or is this a story of a woman who had these memories it was cryptomnesia actually her past life that she thought was a past life was probably something a lot more logical and reasonable than that. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you would like to find out anything about Real Life Ghost Stories podcast, you can do so by checking out the website, reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. Don't forget to have a look at our social media this week, Instagram, Facebook, wherever else I can manage to put it. And I will be posting some giveaways for merch. And thank you so much for listening. And I will see you next time.